Well, good morning. So I've been encouraged to wait a little bit there, and I'm going to try it. So it's a hard call as a public person. If you, is that rhetorical, or are you supposed to respond? And it's not always clear. So we'll try again, and I'll, I'll ask you to say good morning back, since it's awkward to respond if you don't know what you're supposed to do. We'll try it again. I'll go, good morning. And it, you know, it does encourage me. I, I admit that. It encourages me. I know it's a time where everyone's moving around and we're not sure what to do. Anyway, uh, our children are leaving. If they've not already left, they're going to Children's Church. They're going to uh, learn about uh, the same things we're talking about, but in ways that are a little more appropriate to their level. We're moving through the book, a book of the Bible uh, called James. And one of the things we've done uh, this fall is we're, we're trying to help give some helps to engaging in the sermon with a sermon outline. You may have this in your bulletin. Some of you might find this helpful. Some of you might not want to use it. That's fine. Um, But uh, in particular this week, there's a subtitle that might be helpful. When we published the bulletin, I was was a little behind. Um, And I realized that this week and next week, we're going to be dealing with a similar theme in James. That theme is hearing and doing God's word. But James applies it two very different directions. If you keep reading a little bit beyond verse 25, you'll see he takes this theme of hearing and doing and moves to our outer conduct. How do we engage with the world around us? But the theme of hearing and doing is woven throughout other stuff. And we'll see as we look at the passage today that it not only relates to what we do outward, but it has a lot to do with what's going on inward. And so while I didn't quite have the sermon title when we did the bulletin, I sensed that it needed to be two sermons. So today is hearing and doing, and we're going to use anger as a tool, a window, into thinking about our inner world. What's going on inside of you? And how does that relate to hearing and doing? Next week we'll turn and we'll take a similar theme and and move outward. So I'll read the passage. You'll hear a couple things as we do it. First of all, you'll hear the references to the word, the power of the word, the power of God's word. But you'll also hear references to what we would call our inner world, anger, control, how we speak, how we listen. What does that say about what's going on within us? I'm going to pick up by grabbing a verse from last week. That's why it's in italics, and then I'll, I'll, I'll read all the way through 25. Uh, James 1, verses 18 to 25. Of his own will, that is God's will, he brought us forth by the word of truth that we should be a kind of first fruits of his creatures. Know this, my beloved brothers. Let every person be quick to hear, slow to speak, slow to anger. For the anger of man does not produce the righteousness of God. Therefore, put away all filthiness and rampant wickedness and receive with meekness the implanted word which is able to save your souls. But be doers of the word, and not hearers only, deceiving yourselves. For if anyone is a hearer of the word and not a doer, he's like a man who looks intently at his natural face in a mirror. For he looks at himself and goes away and at once forgets what he was like. But the one who looks into the perfect law, the law of liberty... And perseveres, being no hearer, but who forgets, but a doer who acts, he will be blessed in his doing. This is the word of the Lord. So we're going to use anger as a window into thinking about our inner world. What I mean by inner world is the thought life, the things within us, 
And we contrast that with the stuff that's very visible, the things that we do around us, and how the world around us impacts us. That's what we'll look at next week. As I begin, I begin with an assumption, is that, and that is that all of you can think of ways in which anger impacts your life. Maybe you find your own struggle with anger to be a big part of your life. And there's different kinds of anger, aren't there? Anger that burns slowly and long-standing resentment or bitterness. Anger that bursts out in uncontrollable rage. Anger that fits somewhere in the middle. Anger that turns inward or upward towards God. There's a lot to be said about anger, but we experience not, the ang- not only the anger of ourselves, but the anger of others. We live in a world of angry people, do we not? Uh, many could say, and I think they're right, that the culture we live in is getting angrier, angrier by the minute. I was, uh, had the privilege to be uh, overseas. At the end of the summer, I was speaking to missionaries from Bulgaria and, and Greece, at a, at a retreat, and one of the evenings, the missionaries who had been mostly overseas for a while asked me to sit with them later in the evening and answer questions about America. Uh, many of them said, you know, the country has changed since we were last there. Why is everyone so angry? It happens to us slowly when we're here, but rising anger is all around us. In fact, I would suggest if we're not careful, the default would be to see anger as a powerful tool to get what we want in a difficult world. Maybe for you those lessons were learned at a young age. A good friend of mine was just sharing this past week. He doesn't seem like an angry person, but he said, for me, anger is a struggle all of the time. I grew up in an angry family, and I have had to work to live differently. Everything about my upbringing taught me that anger was the tool to get what I want, to protect myself, or to control things around me. James asks us to think about anger. Our thinking won't end there. I think anger is a window to see something bigger and more powerful. But James tells us some important things about anger. We're going to do three things in the passage. First of all, we're going to look at anger and see what James tells us about it and what it shows us. But secondly, we'll see a response to that. James tells us we do something else. He speaks of receiving the word with meekness, hearing and doing that changes us and meets us in the midst of anger. And third and finally, I'll ask you to very practically examine your lives and see how this can relate. So first of all, what does James tell us about anger? Now, at first, James does something incredibly useful, and we just take it on face value, would be useful. He gives us a really helpful little paradigm. We might even say a proverb about anger. This is a good thing. This is wisdom for your life. You should be quick to hear, slow to speak, slow to anger. James wants them to know this. He, he, he actually embeds it in very uh, familial language. Know this, my beloved brothers. It's as if he's sort of writing in bold. All right, James is either writing with a pen or someone was writing for him. He didn't have a bold font. But he wants them to hear it. And he underscores it, so to speak. Know this, my beloved brothers. Meaning the church as a whole, the entire family of God. Let every person be quick to hear, slow to speak, slow to anger. That's helpful for us, isn't it? Just a helpful check in life. 
No matter what you're doing or where you're going or what's going on, that's a really helpful check. Am I quick to hear, slow to speak, slow to anger? Now, what we gather from this, if we think about anger, is a couple things. First of all, James doesn't tell us that all anger is always bad. In the Bible, God is portrayed as being angry. But the anger of God is always bounded by his justice, his goodness, his righteousness, and even tempered by his mercy. In other words, the anger of God never flies off the handle. It doesn't do things inappropriate, but it's always working for his good purposes. James doesn't tell us that we never would be angry or that anger would never be appropriate, but he tells us we should be very careful, very slow, because of all the tools that God gives us, it is probably one of the ones most easily misused. Slow to anger. The students of the Bible would remember that Jesus expressed anger. I don't think there's any other way to regard his scene in the temple as he cleansed the temple with a whip, driving out those that had defiled the temple courtyard with their money changing. Jesus spoke angrily at the Pharisees. He saw their sin. He spoke appropriately, truthfully, in a way that was accurate. Wouldn't that be great if we did that as well? The New Testament as a whole, however, paints a different picture. It warns us time and again, sometimes almost forgetting to to pay tribute to the appropriate place that anger could play, appropriate righteous anger that a human could display in the right setting. Puts a big caution flag over it. James does that. Slow to anger. Human anger is seldom bounded by righteousness, goodness, seldom displayed in measure towards redemptive purposes. Human anger often moves instead towards our own purposes. Human anger often brings destruction and harm rather than reconstruction, redemption, and good. Well, God might be calling us to act use anger to press into a difficult situation to finally confront a problem we often use anger to get what we want to complain when we don't get it to control sometimes we have no idea why we're angry or what's happening beneath the surface I think one of the keys that we see as we look at the passage are the different ways in which anger is a picture of what's really going on inside of us Why do you get angry? You get angry because there's something that matters to you that's wrong. Something you want you can't get. Something you see that's important that isn't happening. Often, however, what's being displayed is a disproportionate sense of our own desire to control the world around us and to act as our own king. Even anger goes wrong because we have control problems. A uh, counselor and author, David Pollison, speaks about it this way. He says, when your life is ruled by pride, when it gets final say over who you are, then all of your angers will be distorted by the everyday evils of the world. Fear, obsession, arrogance, grievous disappointment, self-righteousness, self-pity, blind hostility, despair, and ordinary self-interest. The wrong sort of anger is one of the quintessential sins 
It merits the full displeasure of God. But it also loudly demonstrates that my will be done is a defining feature of your life. Our anger says something about what's going on inside. That's clear in many other places, but it's revealed also in this passage. There's a couple things going on here that I think show us that that's what James is getting after here. Anger is about more than just anger. It's about what's going on within. First of all, we see the linking of anger with talking. When I came to the passage this week, I had many questions about it, but one of them was this. Why does, why does James put anger and talking together? Be quick to listen, slow to speak, slow to anger. What's the link between the two things? Not all talkative people are visibly angry, and not all visibly angry people are really talkative. I think for James, this is the first clue that anger is more than just anger, but it's about something deeper. Both talking too much and anger are ways that we express our desire to control the world around us. What happens when you're in a conversation and you're slow to listen, quick to speak? Aren't you effectively controlling the conversation? There's many reasons you might do it, right? Many reasons I I tend to do it. I, I struggle with this. It's an occupational hazard. I get paid to speak. It can be tempting to control situations by talking too much. Maybe we don't value the things that other people say. We have a disproportionate value on our own words and our own ideas. Or maybe we simply don't want them to get an angle on us. We want to control the outcome. Doesn't our anger often do a similar thing? Maybe you haven't thought about it that way, but if you learned anger in your family, weren't you essentially learning that it was a way to protect yourself or get what you want? Maybe it's just a flat-out expression that you think the world revolves around you and you're mad when it doesn't. What James wants us to do is is to see that... See, that is an important issue in the Christian life. He also tells us that anger, even when we think we're right, is usually not appropriate and not getting what we want. The second verse about anger goes as this. It says, the anger of man does not produce the righteousness of God. It's been a very powerful verse for me to meditate on recently. Here's why I think James follows with it. Whenever we're angry, we're angry about something we care about. It seems important. And it's really easy to justify it by saying it's necessary. Or maybe it's what God wants. Again, we have a category. We know that anger could move us to a constructive engagement with a difficult problem. That's not usually what it does. And James wants us to know that all too often, whether in the first century or in the 21st century, we excuse our anger by saying it's necessary, I must produce righteousness. James says it doesn't work that way. When our anger, human anger, flows from the wrong sense of control, we push God out of the way. We act in the space where God should be acting. We don't produce the righteousness of God, we make a mess. I know the variety of your circumstances and all the things that could be different. I'm speaking generally about what I think is most common and most central. 
James Warren says the anger of God is not produced of righteousness of man. So what do we do about it? Second point here. How do we respond? The passage, I think, is important to see, has a causal link in it. Verse 21. Therefore, Paul says, this is how you should act. It's a pointer to your sense of control. And your anger can't be justified by trying to, to tell yourself you're getting the right thing. Therefore, what? Therefore, put something away and grab something else. We might call this repentance and faith. Therefore, James says, put away all filthiness and rampant wickedness and receive with meekness the implanted word which, was, which is able to save your souls. And here we see the second clue to what James is thinking about when he speaks about anger. The opposite of control, of anger, failing to listen, speaking too much, controlling things around. The opposite of that is receiving God's word with meekness. Now, meekness is not a word we use a lot in English anymore. And often we think of meekness merely as being weak. I think maybe because it rhymes, when I hear the word meek, the first thing I think of is mouse. All right? And mouse is not really admirable. They could have a very important function, but the mental picture is not a positive one. And when we say that person's meek, we usually aren't giving them a compliment, but the Bible's different. The Bible uses the word meekness not primarily to describe how we relate to others, timid, mouse-like, but how we relate to God. For instance, the, one of the classic uses in the Old Testament is a reference to the, the great Old Testament leader Moses. You know of Moses, if you know something of the Old Testament story, you may know that, that Moses was the one who stood up to Pharaoh, the greatest relig- ruling leader of the time, and demanded, after some prodding by God, let God's people go. He stood face to face with the ruler of the vast empire of Egypt. And you would say, that's a bold man. But in the book of Numbers, the author says, now the man Moses was very meek, more than all the people on the face of the earth. What the word meek means is uh, responsive, even submissive to. And it refers to our relationship to God. A person who receives God's word with meekness is responding to God, releasing control, allowing his word to have impact in their lives. A pastor and theologian named Donald Barnhouse spoke about meekness this way. It's an illustration I'd heard years ago, and I, I dug it up to quote him accurately. What is meekness, Barnhouse asks. Many people have totally the wrong idea of it, but they learn the true meaning by listening to the horse racers of the day. The horse that wins the race is said to be the meekest horse on the track. This is the horse most under control, the horse that responds most quickly to the jockey's guidance. The self-willed horse, the factitious horse, it's frequently left behind. He may start faster, but he does not finish with the leaders who are meek. In the Bible, meekness is a vertical issue. I think the reason that James contrasts anger with meekness is he's getting exactly at this issue of control. 
Friends, there are wonderful books written on it. I don't want to oversimplify. When you see anger in your life, you may need to do much more than listen to a 30-minute sermon on anger. I know there's a lot going on, but there's a helpful connection here. Our anger can be a window into our sense of control. And there, as we receive God's word in meekness, he can begin to remake us, renew us, and change us. The message that saves us is the implanted word that we receive with meekness. And that's why for James it's so important that we hear and do. An attitude of self-control, self-determination. We might hear God's word, but we're not going to respond to it. A posture of meekness says, thy will be done. And when that happens, it begins to change how we work in the world around us. So put away all filthiness and rampant wickedness. Be quick to listen, slow to speak, slow to anger. Don't justify your anger with claims to righteousness, but rather receive God's word with meekness. Recognizing he's at work, he has power, he has authority. Friends, the word of truth that saves us reminds us that God does have righteous anger. But his righteous anger is even trained towards redemptive purposes. We're reminded that on the cross, the just anger of God at sin was poured out, but not at deserving humans like me and you, but on our substitute, on the Lord Jesus Christ. God does not bury his anger, his just displeasure with sin. He doesn't turn a blind eye and pretend that it's not there, but he trains his anger redemptively for the salvation of angry sinners like you and me. That's the God you can trust as you submit to his word with meekness. As you begin to say, little by little, increasingly more, thy will be done, I release to you that which you have not given to me to control. That begins to change us, doesn't it? The word received in meekness is able to save your souls. The promise of God's character, the encouragement of his forgiveness, the warning of our sin. So let me close third and finally by asking you to think about your anger. There is, as we said before, righteous anger channeled to be constructive. I want to remind you that we're not called to be passive. Some of you today may be people in a place where, where actually God is spurring you forward to action. He's urging you to an appropriate anger that takes redemptive action and moves forward, not in a blind rage, but in measured, determined action. And for some of us, that is the call to engage, to act, to enter in. But all of it is governed by this warning, a warning found repeatedly in the scriptures that we ought to be slow to anger, aware of the consequences, aware that our anger is often human anger, not righteous anger, and that we're easily self-deceived. Counselor Ed Welch in the Journal of Biblical Counseling asked helpful questions on anger. I'd like to ask them to you and ask you to think about them. I ask you to think about the role of anger in your life. I'm not a visibly angry person. I think most people who know me would say that. I struggle with anger. It's real. 
I, I suspect most of you would say the same thing. Maybe it's channeled in all kinds of different ways. Can you think concretely about it? What do people say about your anger? How do they see it? How does it affect them? How does it impact them? What are the most recent episodes of anger? Where has it been destructive and harmful? What situations provoke your anger? Who are the targets? How does it affect the members of your family, parents, spouse, siblings? Who are the people that egg you on to anger? What have been the consequences? How have you tried to deal with it? How do you plan to change? In the same article, Ed Welsh turns a corner and presses even deeper. Questions that can be quite uncomfortable. Would you trust God enough to listen to them? To ask them? To think of them? He prefaces the question or surrounds the question with this statement. If we tell the truth, there are things we like about our anger. theme we've seen in James already. The nature of sin is that we sin because we like it. It's not advertised broadly in our churches, but it's true when we're blind and insane in our sin, the thought of changing is tantamount to giving up something we dearly love. It's a call to spend the rest of your life putting our darling death to sin, our darling sin to death. Here's what he means. Are you willing to give up self-righteousness as you give up anger? Are you willing to give up power and control that anger brings you? Are you ready to be demoted from a position of power and authority that anger has helped you to achieve? And at the very least, Ed Welch writes, angry people live in a self-exalted world judging other people. Are you actually ready to trust God and give up being a vigilant party of one, a vigilante party of one, Are you willing to take radical action? Are you willing to hate your sin? Or as James would say, are you willing to put off all wickedness and unrighteousness and receive with meekness the implanted word which is able to save your souls? Are you willing to yield space of your kingdom to the king of the universe? The king with marks in his hands and a crown of thorns on his head promises to care for you with sacrifice and love. Will you trust him? Trust him enough to lay down the control, grasp hold of faith, the promise that he cares for us even when we can't act or when it's not appropriate to do so. On the flip side, right? The promise that when we have courage to act appropriately, he's able to care for us and work beyond what we could hope to do. Let's pray.